listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Um, I'm Mary Woods. I'm the director of Westbridge, which is um, an organization that helps people with co-occurring major mental illness and substance use disorders uh, recover and regain their lives. And um, before we start, I just want to wish the New England Patriots really good luck um, on Sunday. And um, I would like to introduce our guest today. His name is Tom Durham, and he's a Ph.D. and a licensed alcohol and drug abuse counselor, and he's also certified clinical supervisor. And Tom is Executive Director of the, Dan- of the Danya Institute and Project Director of the Central East Addiction Technology Transfer Center in Silver Spring, Maryland. He also manages the Clinical Preceptorship Program, a system-wide network of clinical supervision for alcohol and drug counselors throughout the United States Navy. In addition, Tom is an assistant professor at North Central University where he teaches graduate-level courses in alcohol and drug counseling. Tom has written several workbooks, training guides, and online courses for addiction treatment professionals, including NADAC's independent study course for clinical supervisors. Tom is on the advisory board of the Addiction Professional Magazine, where he occasionally contributes articles on clinical supervision. He has developed and delivered a variety of substance abuse counselor training programs on topics including clinical supervision, ethics, counseling theory, and pharmacology of alcohol and drugs. Tom's clinical experience began in 1974 and includes substance abuse treatment, family therapy, employee assistance consultation, clinical supervision, and training of counselors. Tom holds a Master of Arts degree in Counseling Psychology from the Adler School of Professional Psychology and a Ph.D. in Psychology from North Central University. His doctoral studies culminated in a dissertation with research on clinical supervision of alcohol and drug counselors. Tom's passion is to enhance treatment opportunities for those suffering from addiction through the professional development of counselors, supervisors, supervisors, and leaders for the addiction profession. Tom, what do you do in your spare time? <laughs> well, it is a it's a busy life for all of us, right, Mary? I'm sure you you can agree. Yeah, um, clinical supervision is such an important part of workforce development, of professional development, and it's really the checks and balances for um, for treatment on a whole. And I know that in many circumstances, um, especially over the last 10 years, clinical supervision has, has kind of gone by the wayside because it's not it's a quote-unquote non-billable activity. Um, counselors are asking to do more and more with less and less resources. And I'm just wondering if you would um, just speak a little about what the current pulse is for supervision nationally. Well, I think... First of all, first of all, let me let me just define or give a definition of supervision. Let me just talk about what I feel good clinical supervision is, and I want to just start by saying it's a collaborative relationship, and I think that's so important. It's a collaborative relationship between two individuals, whereby the clinical supervisor is doing a total assessment of the needs of the counselor with uh, as it re- as those needs relate to the patients that he or she is treating. So there's a and, there, and w- along with that, there's a didactic component to the relationship, in that um, the individuals, as the individuals' needs are assessed, the supervisor makes sure that uh, professional development uh, happens, 
uh, while focusing on the areas that this person needs to develop uh, him or herself on. There's also, of course, that oversight component that we see in any supervisor relationship, which you know uh, relates to making sure that uh, all treatment is done ethically and that the counselor is ethically grounded. Um, it, there's a lot to the definition of clinical supervision, and I could go on and on, but I think one of the things I want to, again, emphasize is that it is a collaborative relationship. In fact, I often draw a lot of parallels between the relationship between the supervisors and the or supervisor and counselor and the relationship between the counselor and the patient. And in that respect, the supervisor is also put in a position to model that kind of relationship. So with, with that said, let me just say a few things about uh, today's field and, uh, and, and how clinical supervision relates. And, and I agree with what Mary said about the fact that uh, it often is uh, put to the wayside. And because of funding shortages, clinical supervision isn't necessarily in the forefront. Of course, I have a different opinion on that, and I would like to see it uh, utilized a lot more frequently and, and uh, along the way that I just described it. But our field is, is kind of at a crossroad right now, and I think you know we really need to go into a new direction, a uh, direction that will uh, lead us some, to some, I think, much-needed much change. And I think the clinical supervisor can play a significant role in leading the way and by modeling that change. And I think there, there are several reasons why we need change. We find that not only due to the funding shortages that Mary alluded to, but there also seems to be a large turnover of staff right now in our field. I was reading an article uh, recently where they quoted uh, Tom McClellan as saying there, there are four things that he was concerned about. One was the turnover of staff. Another was the, the, the fact that programs tend to have outmoded technology. The third was that patients are not interested in the one-size-fits-all approach that many programs are still offering. And finally, uh, he, he mentioned the fact that more than half of addiction treatment programs do not have staff physicians, and this is in spite of the fact that there's new evidence uh, or new evidence-based medicated assistant therapies that are existing and that are found to be quite useful. So those are some of the concerns uh, with the field today. Another concern I have is the fact that most patients, and I, I do believe it's most patients, have some kind of co-occurring disorder, in other words, not just the addiction. But unfortunately, staff are ill-equipped to treat them, and hence they don't recognize that the psychiatric disorders, which, when untreated, will lead the addict back to uh, drinking or drug use. And I think we can say the, 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 the same thing about the uh, mental health field, that people in the mental health field do not recognize that many of their patients are addicts. So these are some of the things that are happening right now that I think we really need to be concerned about, and the supervisor, I think, can, can play a, a pretty significant role in this. Well, you know, what you're bringing up really is about supervision, but it's also about what you do with part of your time and it's in terms of teaching. And, you know, as you said, our field is evolving. And, um, you know, 30 years ago, people would come through the field, often through their own personal experience, and they would take a number of, of classes or courses or workshops and then somehow become certified to be in, in in the profession, and as this profession is evolving, that really isn't enough, is it? No, it's not. I think we really, we, we also need to raise the bar, so to speak. And I, and I think this is happening as far as credentialing is concerned, but we are somewhat unique in that we are, oh, in some ways we're still a new profession and, and are unique um, to the other healthy, helping professions in that there are a lot of 
paraprofessionals mixed with seasoned therapists and treatment programs. Um, and in many cases, certification does not require advanced degrees. And I know that's pretty controversial because on one hand, we don't want to lose the value that many paraprofessionals bring to the field, especially those in recovery. But on the other hand, I think it's important that we raise the bar, even for those who enter the field as paraprofessionals, to be able to continue their education and training so that they, they do become credentialed. So I think, you know, we're, we're unique in some ways, but in, because of that uniqueness, um, we're a little behind the curve, so to speak, when we compare ourselves to other uh, behavioral health professionals. But I think on, on the positive side, I think we, we can raise the bar and we can expect uh, um, higher levels of, of credentialing. And that uniqueness really um, under, underlies the, the essential need for clinical supervision. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, another area that I want to address, and, and this is I came back from a meeting a few weeks ago that SAMHSA, uh, Substance Abuse Mental Health System uh, Services Administration, put on where they're having these regional meetings uh, inviting people from uh, the state uh, programs, the SSAs of all the states, and other interested people to uh, be involved in discussions on the need to really move our field into uh, what's what's known as a recovery uh, move the treatment programs into what's known as recovery-oriented systems of care. Um, and, and what we're talking about here is the need to really, truly individualize care that's, that's strength-based for each individual, you know, and to really attend to the multiple needs of each individual, to be culturally responsive, uh, to provide a continuum of care, uh, to continually assess and modify each patient's treatment, um, and to acknowledge that there are other ways of treating individuals. I mentioned medicated assistant treat, assisted treatment earlier. For some patients, this is the right route, route to go. It's not for everyone. But also, again, as I mentioned earlier, the need to recognize co-occurring disorders and to, and, to, and to recognize the fact that recovery from drug addiction can be a very long-term process. I think one of, the, one of the failures in our field is we've done a lot of acute care. We treat people. We detox them. We tell them to go to AA, but we don't provide much follow-on care. I think in this new recovery-oriented system of care, one of the things we really want to emphasize is the fact that recovery is a long-term process, and it requires multiple uh, stages of treatment uh, in, in the person's recovery, for, for many people, not for everyone. But it is a new way of looking at treatment, and, and I think that it's, it's something that uh, the, the field could definitely benefit from as we focus more on recovery-oriented systems of care. And when we think about different stages of treatment, it requires different types of treatment interventions that are not that one-size-fits-all, or finding new ways to help engage people in treatment as opposed to saying, well, you're in denial, come back when you've hit bottom. That's right. That's right. And, and ironically, I find that, or I guess we could say coincidentally, I find that when we, when we go into treatment programs and we look at systems and we encourage systems to make changes, sometimes we get met with the kind of resistance from uh, counseling staff that the counseling staff often get met with from patients. And so we have to be careful that we don't tell them that they're into resistance or that they're in denial, so to speak, if we're helping systems make changes. Uh, because, you know, we're, we're faced with not, resistance to change is one thing, but we're faced with, a, with an overriding issue, and I think this has to be said, and that's that our field in general, at least the patient who enters a treatment in our field, is often met with stigma and discrimination. Um, 
So not only is funding a problem, but there's that, that outlook that's still there in our society um, that the, the alcoholic or the addict is someone who brought something on him or herself, and there's this almost this moral uh, viewpoint of who that person is. And I think that has been a, a huge detriment uh, to our field being able to make advances. Um, well, and that, that, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I think um, we recognize addiction and mental illness as being a brain disease, and um, this is probably the only chronic illness where you're denied treatment if you're if you're actively symptomatic. And um, we'll come back after our break and talk a little bit more about uh, the discrimination that people in recovery face and what supervision can do to help eliminate that. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, Family Center Recovery for Co-Occurring Mental Illness and Substance Abuse Disorders. If you're looking for a better way to clean the air in your home or office, you need the all-new ozone light. It's as simple as changing your light bulbs. The ozone light looks like a normal spiral type of light bulb. It screws in most standard light sockets, but it's not a normal light bulb. It's coated with titanium dioxide. It's completely safe, but this unique coating kills most airborne bacteria, mold spores, and neutralizes odors. Just one light cleans the air in an entire room and lasts eight times longer than the normal light bulb. If you have smokers, if you have allergies, if you have pet odors, mold, or mildew, you need the ozone light. It will wipe them out, and you have our word. If you're not satisfied with the way the ozone light cleans the air in your home, simply return it for a full refund. Here's the number to call to order. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. Save up to $100 now. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to One Hour at a Time. We have Dr. Tom Durham as our guest today, and we're talking about clinical supervision. And before we left for break, we were talking about how sometimes the treatment system will discriminate against the person who is trying to receive help for their addiction or and or their mental illness. And, you know, some of the things that we can do in supervision to help decrease that discrimination or even the need for supervisors to begin to look at uh, treatment interventions that are not one size fits all and, and how we need to relook at tr- 
treatment in general. And for instance, the whole notion that, um, well, oftentimes insurance companies will allow you, if you're lucky, um, 30 days over the course of a lifetime for inpatient treatment. That's discriminatory. Um, but in terms of our own clinical practice, if someone's actively using, we discharge them from treatment, from residential treatment. It seems like that that's kind of, um, I don't know, a paradox, if nothing else. If, if I have active chest pain and I'm still smoking, I don't get discharged from the emergency room and, and I'm not told to come back when, you, when I stop smoking. If I'm diabetic and I'm not um, managing my my uh, diet very well and I become hypoglycemic and end up in the emergency room, they don't tell me, well, come back when your symptoms are, are gone. And, um, you know, supervisors really have to start to begin to look at how can we um, help the people we supervise relook at some of these um, ingrained beliefs that we've had throughout the years in terms of addiction treatment. And, Tom, I wondered if what your thoughts are in terms of um, supervisors and helping to eliminate that discrimination. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on the topic. I, you know, one thing that comes to mind is that, you know, you mentioned use the term one size fits all. I think that many of us who have been around a while, I, I was in working in treatment back in the 70s when that was how we did treatment, unfortunately. I hate to admit it. But I think there are some, some around today that still look at it that way either this worked for me so it will work for my patient or this is the way we do it uh, without even questioning the way we do it. And I think that what that does is that, that gets us away from really looking at the individual. And I think we really need to um, organize care around those individual needs. And, you know, I mentioned being culturally responsive before, but also even going beyond that, and that's being responsive to each person's belief system as well. You know, we know that, that it doesn't do any good to try to change someone's beliefs. If, if anything, it's going to push them out of, out of therapy. So we need to take the opposite uh, stance and really get to know who that person is. You know, I, of, I often say, you know, this, this goes back for 40 or 50 years when Carl Rogers was first writing, but, you know, he was, he was so right on with, with a lot of his person-centered approaches that, that now are, are coming back into vogue with some of the newer therapies like motivational interviewing like a lot of the strength-based approaches. And I think that makes a lot of sense to really, you know, really discover what the unique needs of this individual, um, what these needs are. And I think a treatment program needs to really broaden uh, the scope of how they approach treatment in offering care that's truly individualized, not only in the sense of how many days the person's in the treatment, but the, the type of treatment he or she uh, encounters and, uh, you know, who the who the perhaps even who that counselor is assigned to that patient. But I know that, unfortunately, we're restricted from what we can do by third-party funding, and that's probably one of the biggest challenges we have. Um, but I, I truly believe that, you know, as a, as a clinical supervisor, I think we can be very effective in helping our counselors really look at the individual and really look, maybe look at their own biases. You know, what, what is preventing me from providing good care to this individual? I mentioned co-occurring disorders a few minutes ago, and, and one, one more thing I want to say about that is, is, is I see that, that folks like myself who work in addiction treatment and individuals who are working in mental health treatment sometimes have what I call interdisciplinary stigma. 
And I think that also prevents effective treatment as well because we look at an individual and we say, oh, they've got an addiction problem. Um, that's a symptom. That's only, or that's their, that's how they're medicating their, their, uh, their mental problem, and, and that's all it is, and they're weak to even go there. And then on the other hand, you've got someone who says, well, this person is an addict, and if there are any symptoms of mental illness, well, they're going to go away once they sober up. Unfortunately, that's not always the case, and it's those, those often that co-occurring disorder, those, those uh, psychiatric symptoms that cause them huge problems later on if they're not treated properly. Um, right, because it's one brain, and unfortunately, we've divided that brain up according to our own uh, belief system and behavioral health care has divided the brain away from the rest of the body, so we don't really see the person as an integrated uh, person that has multiple um, challenges and strengths, we see the person as, okay, I treat addiction, so that's what I see in front of me, or I treat mental health, and that's what I see in front of me. Right. And, no, I, and I think that supervision is so important in that circumstance or in every circumstance because in the addiction profession, a lot of us are either um, in recovery from our own addiction or we're, we're, we're here because our family system was um, there was addiction in our family system. And so there's a very high rate and possibility for transference and counter-transference. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And uh, we all bring our own biases. You know, well, this person can't be an alcoholic because my father was an alcoholic and he didn't act like that. Mm-hmm. Or or my father acted like that and this person's pushing all my buttons. Yeah, I often, you know, in, in supervision, often see the... Counter-transference, first of all, is so common, I think, with counselors. It, it, it happens all the time, you know, and it, it, it rarely, let's say, well, maybe not rarely, but it, it's, it happens more often than, uh, than the type of counter-transference that can be um, damaging to the patient. But it's always there because it's who we are. You know, our reaction to anyone we come in contact with, our, our reaction to them is a type of counter-transference. And sometimes it can be harmful. Sometimes it's it's not. Sometimes it's just left, it just stays under the unconscious. But it's something that I think it's important that count that the supervisors uh, deal with in supervision. Help counselors understand how they may have countertransferential re- reactions uh, to their patients and how that could be harmful uh, to the uh, the care that they're providing. What would be a good example of a countertransference? Well, I guess I guess the best example would be, uh, you know, any kind of emotion or a feeling that's evoked by the counselor uh, by virtue of who the who the patient is. And you know, I think a, a basic type of countertransference is when a counselor just just doesn't like the patient. Um, you can see how that can be detrimental to that patient's care. If I have a certain attitude about that patient, uh, then that's going to have a big impact on how we relate to them. So, you know, I think it's important in supervision that counselors are aware of when they're having countertransferential reactions and be able to talk about them. Usually just talking about it in supervision uh, can help alleviate that and can help them build the positive relationship with a client. You know, we always come into situations where a counselor is not the right one for a client for whatever reason, and if a treatment uh, facility has the luxury to be able to assign someone to another counselor, sometimes that's the best way to go. Um, but but I think that uh, you know supervision can be very helpful in, in helping counselors work through that. You know I want to get back to one other thing um, when we were talking about co-occurring disorders. I want to just give a good example of how I, uh, counselors uh, 
I've witnessed in the last year, so how counselors have kind of overcome their biases toward, you know, addiction counselors toward mental health problems, mental health counselors toward those towards addicts, and that is a, uh, a training program that that I'm somewhat involved in in the District of Columbia, where we've taken uh, individuals who work in mental health and individuals who work in addiction and train them together in co-occurring disorders. The for one thing, they bonded quite well because this is a long-term training program where they were going, you know, one day a week uh, in the evening, actually, after after work uh, for um, almost a year. But the other thing is a lot of a lot of uh, insights were gained, a lot of eyes opened up. And when we did a graduation ceremony a few months ago, we we had everyone give a testimonial, and almost to a person, each one of them said, "I had no idea what I didn't know." You know, those from the mental health world said, I had no idea what it meant to be an addict, and vice versa. So it's an example of how I think we, you know, in supervision and training, how we can help individuals, you know, uh, kind of broaden their scope a little and, and, and become better equipped to deal with, with patients, especially those with comorbid psychiatric disorders. You know, um, I want to give you two instances um, that I came across in the last, few months, I was at a conference and I was talking to this person who was marketing for a national treatment program and um, talking about, you know, what type of people that they treat. And this person said, well, you know, uh, we you know, we treat people that may, may have major addiction problems. And I said, oh, well, you know, that must be fun. And, and the person said, yeah, but, you know, um, you can always tell, tell when they're lying. And I said, how is that? And she said, well, when their lips are moving. And I said, oh... Okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, and this is a person who was marketing for a program, but from a supervisory perception, I just wanted to sit the person down and say, "Do you know what you just said?" Mm-hmm. Right. You know. Right. Yeah, I think the, certainly it's indicative of a lot of the misunderstandings or biases uh, that are out there, and you know, getting back to that stigma, which leads to discrimination. I think there is a lot of stigma and, uh, that's a result of those biases. And, we have to be really careful. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm an advocate of overcoming the general bias and stigma in our society, but we have to resolve it within ourselves if we're going to be able to promote it out there right. because our biggest challenge is what the rest of the world thinks of the addict uh, because that's what's preventing um, you know, parity in health and health care funding. That's what's, that's what's preventing um, you know, treatment programs to be adequately uh, funded in, in a variety of ways. And I think that uh, without that that support out there, um, you know, we're we're not getting the we're not able to do the work that we need to do. But it's got to start within our own uh, the people who work within our own uh, field, and, our, and and really has to start with ourselves. I mean, every right. one of us needs to look at ourselves. We all have our own biases. You know, how how is that impacting our relationship with our patients? And and that's another topic that I find very helpful in in clinical supervision. Right, and I think that good clinical supervision will help us explore those biases, and a good clinical supervisor will be able to, you know, help us when it starts to rear its ugly head, you know, and that's why it's so important for the relationship to be collaborative. And, you know, speaking of that, I want to get back to that now that you mentioned that the the collaborative relationship that I mentioned at the beginning, I think it is so important. It It is so important that two people have developed a kind of bond where there's a lot of trust between each other, between the two of them, so that um, we'll be right back supervision. with more on um, the collaborative nature of clinical supervision with Dr. Tom Durham. 
You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. For the most current and up-to-date information and options in childbearing, family health, and parenting, tune in to Celeste Ranese's Timely Topics in Childbirth, broadcasting every Wednesday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. If you don't know your options, you don't have any. Voice America Network proudly presents The Catherine Zox Show. For women, men, children, and families, Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. Um, we're talking with Dr. Tom Durham about clinical supervision and how important it is and a little bit about how we've gotten away from it as a profession for, for a number of reasons. Prior to going to break, we were talking about the collaborative nature of supervision and how important it is to have um, open communication and, and a safe place to go and talk about issues that um, are kind of getting in our way of providing good clinical care. And, um, Tom, you were saying that you had done some research on, on this for your dissertation. Well, the, the research I did was on the effectiveness of doing live supervision. And the way this relates to the collaborative relationship is one of the conclusions was, was that when supervisors are in the room with the counselor uh, who's doing counseling with the patient, there's a higher there's a higher, a better, much better chance that they're going to form a collaborative relationship. And there's been other research to support this as well. The, what I measured was their level of self, uh, counselor self-efficacy and found a significant difference between those who had live supervision and those who did not. And these are, by and large, entry-level counselors. But, it, but basically, those that were uh, receiving live supervision, which in most cases was a supervisor in the room, you know, as a co-therapist in most cases, they, those individuals who, as I always say, worked in the trenches with their supervisors side by side, developed a, a higher level of self-efficacy than those that didn't have that experience. And along with that came that higher degree of collaboration. Now, one thing that I think is so important when we talk about collaboration is that we try to, as much as possible, eliminate the hierarchy between the counselor and the supervisor. 
I think we found we find in in, uh, in a lot of other research that's out there, uh, not even those that pertaining to this field, but even for instance in the business world, uh, that as we eliminate that hierarchy, as as individuals who are in supervisory roles tend to be more collaborative with the people they supervise and more empowering with those individuals, we find that there's a lot more um, that people feel better about the work they do, and the work they do becomes much much more effective uh, as well. But also in, in this field, I always often talk about the multiple parallels that exist. You know, there's the, the parallel between the agencies and the, uh, and the supervisor. There's the parallel of the, uh, or, or that's, that's one relationship, and then there's a parallel between that and the relationship with the supervisor and the counselor, and then there's a parallel between that and the relationship between the counselor and the patient. And, and in, that, in that sense, we're all role models. The clinical supervisor models collaborative behavior or a collaborative relationship, I should say, with the, with the counselor, and that modeling then allows that counselor to take that into the clinical relationship with the client. And a lot of research has also shown that that, that, that is a very effective approach to take uh, in the clinical relationship. If I'm working with, with, my, uh, with my client and, you know, the, the, the message is we're in this together as opposed to you will do as I say, um, that's a much different message. And so I think that collaboration is so important at, at, at each of those levels. But I think we also, those of us who are directors of agencies, need to take a look at the structure of our agency. You know, are we so hierarchical or perhaps even bureaucratic that the work cannot get done as efficiently as it should? So we're talking about a, a collaborative effort at, at, at multiple levels. Well, it also helps you as a supervisor or as a director kind of keep your finger on the pulse of the agency and what's actually going on. So the more collaborative you are, the more feedback you get, genuine feedback you get on how your program's doing and how the people in your program are doing. Absolutely, absolutely. Is group supervision found to be as effective as one-on-one individual supervision? Oh, yes. I think I think it's a rich type of supervision. As, as I always say, uh, when someone is doing group supervision, there's not one supervisor in that room. Everyone's a supervisor. And I often relate to an experience I had earlier in my career when I worked very closely with seven other outpatient therapists at a clinic. And when we had group supervision once a week, our clinical director, who was our supervisor, took off his supervisory hat as he walked in the room, and we were in there as eight peers giving each other supervision. So it's very rewarding because the, what group supervision does is allow multiple perspectives on a particular case or on a particular situation that a counselor may be presenting on. Um, and so it can be very, very rich and, and bring a lot more into uh, the counselor's work and his or her professional growth in some ways than they would get in that one-on-one, from that one-on-one relationship. Oftentimes what's happened, I know in some mental health centers, is that supervision has been relegated to administrative supervision as opposed to clinical and could you talk a little bit about the difference? And yes, and un- unfortunately, that's true. The um, uh, many I do a lot of workshops on clinical supervision, and I'll ask at the beginning for people to define uh, clinical supervision. And I get a lot of a lot of supervisors define it more as administrative supervision, at least the types of things that they talk about. You know, administrative supervision to me is like you know strictly monitoring one's caseload, and, and some of this is needed. You know, there's certain certain components of administrative supervision that we have to have, but if that's all it is, if if it doesn't 
if it doesn't include anything that's going to be extremely helpful to that counselor doing his or her work with the client, then it's not what I would call clinical supervision. You know, clinical supervision is not therapy, even though, as I said earlier, we, we will sometimes work with our counselors in helping them overcome biases or take a look at their own countertransference. That's not therapy as long as it ends at a certain point. In other words, we're going to talk about what may bother me about this client because it interferes with, with this client's care, but that's as far as it goes. Um, but that's clinical supervision, you know, as opposed to just simply monitoring my caseload. You know, I worked at an agency once where we had to see, you know, so many clients every week, and that seemed to be more con- more the concern of my supervisor than anything else. Right. Um, not my own professional growth, and that's really what what I feel is a major component of of clinical supervision: professional growth on the part of the counselor with the client in mind. And the bottom line is always the client. Clin- good clinical supervision ultimately affects client care, and that's really what it should be about. And I know that there have been some surveys that have done about the workforce turnover, and that what a lot of people are saying is that it's not so much the the low wages that make people leave, but the lack of clinical supervision and the feeling of just being adrift and, and not having that connection and not always feeling like they're growing and, and that clinical supervision adding that could also help with employee retention. Absolutely, absolutely. But, you know, I think some of, the, some of the changes that I alluded to at the beginning of our conversation can certainly impact, I would, I would hope, certainly in, impact what you're talking about. You know, if, if, if the changes in treatment and the changes in how an agency run is run are done to the to the benefit of ultimately the benefit of the client, you know, making this environment a much more positive environment to work and to do effective therapy in, then hopefully that will mean that turnover rate could could be reduced. You know, what I want to do as a treatment director is provide an environment where my counselors, my staff, really they really enjoy what they're doing. They look forward to coming into the workplace because that's going to impact how they do with the, with their clients. So what what we're talking about when we say change is really taking a look at how how a system functions and how people are treated, you know, how the patient especially is treated, you know, are we given are for instance, are we giving the patient choices? Are we allowing them to be free to move through the treatment system by making their own choices how to best meet their needs? And I, again, there's another parallel because as a supervisor, I'm going to want to when I, I'm going to want my counsel, the counselors I supervise, to make those kind of choices for themselves too. I want to give them a sense of freedom, a f- sense of independence, and a sense of empowerment, and they can take that on and give those give those same things to their patients, which I think is not only provides a much much uh, healthier treatment environment, but certainly has a positive impact on on that patient's care as well. Is there any movement nationally to reimburse? Um, programs for clinical supervision. You know, I'm I'm not I'm not aware of of any. I do know that um, credentialing organizations require it, and certain mm-hmm. and certainly to be credentialed or to be accredited, um, you know, is going to mean third party reimbursement, or more likely to get the third party reimbursement, or the you know, at least be able to uh, support the the programs. As much what as about in the block grants or SAMHSA or? I'm really not aware. I, I don't know. It would be something worth checking into, though, certainly. 
you know, I would like to see incentives like that. You know, if, if a program is providing uh, the type of clin- clinical supervision we're talking about, it's got to it's got to uh, impact patient care in a positive way. So, right. wouldn't it make sense that those programs are rewarded in some way? Well, it would, and there's so much push toward evidence-based practices. And in order to do that, you have to be able to provide supervision. Yeah. And it just seems like you know, once again, that pe- people want you to do more with less. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? well, what I can say and relates to uh, something I, I mentioned earlier in the hour is that the federal government through SAMHSA is very much in favor of moving our field towards a recovery-oriented system of care, which is going to require some support to make the changes that they're talking about making. And the, the philosophy that's behind this is, is right along the lines with the sort of things we're talking about here, a lot more collaboration you know, a lot more uh, focus on the patient's needs, individual needs, giving the patient's choices, um, you know, really looking at research-based treatment that that will transform programs from acute biopsychosocial stabilization to a model of sustained recovery, you know, that sort of thing. I think these are, these are this is the direction the government wants to go, so hopefully they'll have some uh, funding to back up, uh, to back all this up. Um, we can only hope. Yep, that's right. <laughs> You know, um, oftentimes a lot of us became supervisors either because of our counseling skills or because we just survived in the agency long enough that people felt like, oh, well, it's time for you to be a supervisor. And I'm just wondering, what are the qualities of a good supervisor? Well, I think the, one, of, one of the qualities of a good supervisor is to be able to form good interpersonal relationships. Um, Many of you listening may be familiar with the term social intelligence, and I think that kind of describes who a good supervisor is, if someone has good social intelligence. Social intelligence, to me, is the ability to, to form positive interpersonal relationships, uh, to show empathy, um, to really show an ability to understand another person, which are qualities that we all want as counselors. We're all trained to, to be that way with counselors, but I think those are also qualities that are important, of course, for clinical supervisors. A uh, supervisor has to be really, truly be a people person. But this is also someone who needs needs to understand his or her limits, needs to know where to seek outside consultation when, when needed. Um, this is also someone who, um, you know, has the experience and the knowledge and the education in, in order to give something to other people. Those are some of the aspects of what makes a good clinical supervisor, and we'll talk about some others, some others when we get back. Okay. Um, we're going to take a break right now, and when we come back, we'll continue on um, what are the good attributes of a supervisor, and we'll be right back. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned 
common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, Family Center Recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. The incidence of autism has increased at an alarming rate. Autism One, a conversation of hope, hosted by Betsy Hicks, illuminates how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Autism is treatable, and given appropriate therapies, children are recovering. With well-known researchers and doctors, members of Congress, and expert service providers from a wide range of disciplines, Betsy offers interviews and insights highlighting the progress in areas related to autism spectrum disorders such as biomedical research and treatment, communication, education, and behavioral modalities, adult services, sociological and philosophical issues, and legislative advocacy and insurance concerns. Autism One, a conversation of hope, broadcasts each Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Autism One, a conversation of hope. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. Our guest today is Dr. Tom Durham, and we're talking about clinical supervision. Before our break, we were talking about what makes a good clinical supervisor. And, Tom, you were talking about the person having a good amount of social intelligence, being able to communicate well with folks, being able to engage folks and make them feel comfortable. And what would qualify? How would someone know if they're, they're receiving good supervision? Are there different things that you can look for? Um, are there things as a supervisee that I should be asking for? That's a good question. And, and, and part of the answer is that I will know I'm getting good supervision if my supervisor is paying close attention to who I am, paying close attention to my needs, leaves the door open for me to ask questions, and, and has, has a, such a positive relationship that I'm willing to share some of my discomfort, some of my concerns about my ability as a counselor, and in turn I get a lot of support and a lot of good advice and a lot of uh, um, uh, input as to how I can improve in those areas. So it's, it's, it's the type of relationship that, that will help me build my professional um, skills as a counselor and done in a way that's not threatening, uh, that's, that's, that's very positive, uh, I like to, as a, one thing I like to, to look at in, su- in supervision is to take what, what is often called the solution-focused approach, uh, you, you're taking some language from a theory of, of counseling. And, and the solution-focused approach is when I, as a supervisor, am very supportive and very positive with the people I supervise, and I look for the things that they're doing well. And I try to expand on that with them. You know, they may be discouraged about a lot of different things, but there's one or two things that they're really good at, and we'll focus on that for a while so that they know that they're, that I see that they're good at that. And then we find ways that they can expand on that. You know, how can you do more of that? 
How can you? How can I help? Me, maybe even uh, recommend a uh, some changes in how they're functioning in their job so they can do more of that. You know, if I have a counselor that is uh, struggling with individual counseling, but is a great group facilitator, I'm going to want to focus on those group skills for a while to make them totally confident in their ability as a group leader, then we may begin to take a look at why they're having difficulties as an individual counselor. So that's what I call the, the solution-focused approach. And, and the other thing I do is to get them to tell me where they want to go professionally. Now, during the break, you were talking about the, you know, the, the, the fact that, you know, what can we do to structure supervision or what can we do to give a person direction under some kind of a structure? What I like to do is have counselors put together a professional development plan. Now, I happen to call it an IDP, Individual Development Plan. It has a lot of different names. Uh, but the Individual Development Plan that, that I'm accustomed to using is where I'll work with the counselor in setting a number and having him or her set a number of goals, professional goals, something that they're going to reach for. And using another, uh, stealing something else from solution-focused therapy, I may even ask them a question that's not too different from the miracle question. The miracle question is simply if you were to wake up tomorrow morning and your life was just the way you'd like it to be, what would it look like? Well, my variation of that in supervision is where do you see yourselves three years from now, four years from now, five years from now? You know, often we use that question in a job interview, but I'll use that when I'm working with an individual and helping him or her grow uh, in a certain area. And that will help give them some direction. It will help them, um, you know, uh, set some goals, on, you know, with regards to what they need to do to reach that major goal. So we'll break it down into, you know, what can we do this month or what can we do this year or what are the goals that we're going to set for ourselves in the next year to reach that ultimate goal that you're striving for, towards in the future. And so I'll end up having, you know, maybe five or six goals and we'll revisit those. We'll take a look at those. The important thing, though, is these goals belong to that individual. They're the ones that, that uh, came up with, with the goals that they're uh, striving towards. They have a sense of ownership in this IDP and this plan that we've developed. It's not mine, it's theirs. It's kind of like a, you know, same, same thing, same way we look at patient treatment plans. You know, if I conduct, if I put together a patient treatment plan and give it to the patient, it's not going to mean a whole lot to them, but if they participate in developing it, then they have a sense of ownership. So that's another thing I would do. So I know we kind of drifted a little bit away from good uh, characteristics of a clinical supervisor, but I think this is an important way to develop that relationship in supervision and to give, give the individual uh, something to, to move towards in their professional growth. Well, and I think it's also important to um, state the obvious and that supervisors need supervision too. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things I talked about earlier when we were talking about characteristics of an effective supervisor is someone who knows their limits. You know, I'm not going to give advice to a supervisee if it's in an area that I'm not equipped to deal with. So what I'm going to do is say, you know, I need to check with someone first. I need to talk to my supervisor. But as you mentioned, supervision doesn't end. And once I become a supervisor, that doesn't mean I don't get supervision anymore. You know, there should there should always be someone I can go to for supervision. And if that if that per, if that doesn't exist at my agency, then I'm going to go outside for supervision. Right. And sometimes we can do that by uh, getting together with a group of peers at our level, peer supervision, where it's not doesn't cost us anything. I've done that before. Or sometimes it might be it might mean buying supervision. You know, meeting with someone privately and and getting supervision. 
but a supervisor needs to have someone else that they can bounce things off of. And I think that it's almost, um, I think it's equally important for the supervisor to get supervision as it is for the supervisee, and that there is a plan, and that once again, as a supervisor, you understand where the areas that you're um, strong in and the areas where you're challenged and you need to grow. And um, and I think oftentimes supervisors get to a point and they don't really get that supervision anymore They're, because of the nature of the agency or they may be the only supervisor for 15 or 20 people. And um, you get into this uh, kind of like autopilot. That's right. And I, and I know I've, I've talked to so many people that, find their time is so limited because they may, like you said, have 15 people that they supervise and they may have carry a caseload and they have other responsibilities. Right. You know, for one thing, that really doesn't give them the quality time they need to devote to the people they supervise, let alone the fact that, that there's no time for them to go uh, to someone else for supervision right. or maybe it's not even provided to them. And that, that can be very dangerous. I mean, we're talking about a situation where someone's under extreme pressure under under a uh, uh, extreme time crunch, not having enough time to devote um, effectively with the people they supervise, and if they're carrying a caseload, I'm wondering what that what that impacts, how that impacts their ability to work with their patients as well. Um, I'm sure it's not easy. Not at all. Uh, what are what are some good tools for people who are currently providing supervision that may want to to learn more or may want to see what's new? just in general want to learn more about supervision? I, well, there's some good resources out there. And, you know, one, there, there are a couple books that I could recommend. Um, one is called The Fundamentals of Supervision by Janine Bernard and Rodney Goodyear. And I think it's in its third edition. There may be a fourth, but the one I have is the third edition. I, I don't have it in front of me, but I believe the publication date is 2003 or 2004. Um, that's a good overview of clinical supervision, very thorough overview of clinical supervision. In fact, I think in some ways the term fundamentals is a misnomer because it's more than fundamentals. Um, I would certainly um, recommend that book. There's another one, and I hope I can come up with a title here, um, but I, I, I know the authors. The authors are uh, Gerald Corey. Um, Gerald Corey is one of three authors, and it's a book that, mm, now I don't know the title, it's a book that uh, I recommend often as well, um, which gives a good overview of clinical supervision itself. And I'm looking for it in my office, but I don't see it, so I'm sorry I can't um, can't quote that one uh, effectively. But um, besides books, uh, you know, look for workshops, look for trainings, um, maybe develop a peer consultation with other supervisors. I've seen that to be very effective. Once, once worked in a state system and uh, doing some uh, training, and when when the training was over, what we did was we set up a system where the, the those those supervisors who were trained uh, would connect with each other and have uh, you know through the internet, but also have the ability to get together face to face in groups. Uh, I think it's a wonderful way to continue to grow and to continue to uh, be aware of, uh, of what Hi, you need Ray. to do to grow as a supervisor. Are there any resources to the Addiction Technology Transfer Centers? Yes. As a matter of fact, three of the centers, uh, my center and two others, are working together to put some curriculum, uh, develop a new curriculum on clinical supervision. And we're also making an effort to collaborate all of our efforts. So even though that's not out there yet, um, we're working hard on, 
on seeing that uh, training curricula is, is uniform throughout the country and that uh, we're doing the best we can to offer information to people who want to be supervisors. Uh, I'd like to thank Dr. Durham for spending this hour with us on clinical supervision. And for those of you who may want more information, you can check out the Central East Addiction Technology Transfer Center website. Um, or you can also, one of the books that is kind of a Bible for supervision is Clinical Supervision by David Powell. Uh, yes, so, I would definitely recommend that one as well. <laughs> and Tom as well. Um, so thank you all. Have a great week. And hopefully next week when we talk to you again, we'll have new reigning Super Bowl champion um, from New England. Um, have a good week, everybody. Thanks, Mary. Thank you, Tom. you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week. to a healthier you. Voice America Health and Wellness. If you have diabetes, then you know your meter is your lifeline. Luckily for you, new meters are more accurate and are easier to use. And the best news is, with our new alternate site meters, you don't have to prick your fingers anymore. And if you're covered by Medicare, Access Diabetic Supply will send you one of these new meters at no cost to you. Medicare patients may even qualify to have all their supplies fully covered with no out-of-pocket costs. We'll even bill Medicare for you directly. There's no upfront costs, and the supplies will be delivered right to you your door for free. Yes, free home delivery. Call now and find out why thousands of diabetics choose access. If you're covered by Medicare and you want to learn how to receive a new meter, call this number now. 800-808-5181. 800-808-5181. Operators are standing by. Call now. 800-808-5181. 800-808-5181. Trying to get pregnant? Need vital information on fertility and reproduction? Then tune in to HaveABaby.com Live with host Kim Han, brought to you by the Share Institutes for Reproductive Medicine. From enhanced embryo selection and male infertility to third-party reproduction and pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, Kim Han and the doctors from the Share Institutes cover the questions and concerns that couples face when they are trying to have a family. HaveABaby.com Live with host Kim Han broadcasts each Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. HaveABaby.com Live sponsored by the Share Institutes for Reproductive Medicine, helping couples go from infertility to family. Voice America Network proudly presents The Catherine Zox Show. For women, men, children, and families, Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, to The Catherine Zox Show on the 